Well, hello, grievers. Mandy here. Restorative grief is all about creating easy access to healing, no matter where or who you are. That's why I want you to remember that if you want grief support beyond a podcast, our Patreon features monthly workbooks to accompany each episode, as well as a Discord channel for more private chats and occasional bonus content as well. Supporting this work with your finances means investing in your own wellness and the healing of others, and that in itself is an incredibly generous and restorative practice. The link to the Patreon is in the show notes, but reach out with questions, okay? Now, let's get on to this week's episode. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 123, titled What We Learn from the Birds with Courtney Ellis. This week, our conversation about grief starts with the work of author, speaker, and pastor Courtney Ellis. In the last two years, Courtney's loss of her grandfather invited her to pause and reimagine her own approach to grief, hope, and spirituality. Though we may not all be ready to pick up our binoculars, Courtney's new hobby of birdwatching creates a beautiful framework for faith-based grievers to examine what may be available as healing if they'll only look up. Hey everybody, welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. I'm Mandy, as you know, and today I'm really excited to have author and speaker and pastor Courtney Ellis with us today on the show. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Mandy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I was just saying off air how much I love your book that we're going to be talking about and your work, especially because lately you've been framing it around this hobby of bird watching, And it's such a unique approach to life and grief. And so when anybody can take the lens of a hobby and see the bigger picture and see the intricacies of how it all really comes together to paint this beautiful invitation for us. I'm just really excited. So um, for anyone who doesn't know your work, of course, you have a handful of these beautiful books that are, I, you know, I was like, how do I distill these down? They're really just a simple invitation onto like a joyful, lighthearted, hope-filled pathway in life. Majority of us who approach grief through the lens of our faith end up struggling with that secondary loss of like, well, wait a minute, my faith doesn't quite fit it the way I expected it to. Um, and I'm not sure what to do now. And so I, I deeply appreciate your willingness to do the more uncertain work of exploring what could actually be possible if we embrace something a little bit off center or off Mm. out of the norm. So um, why don't you give us just a rundown of the book itself? I know each chapter kind of integrates a type of bird and some beautiful stories, but it was also really the story of losing your grandfather. It was. It's it's funny. I talk to a lot of birders. I am a birder. And the more I talk to birders, the more I hear a very similar story from many of them, which is that sadness got them into birding or that in a time of great sadness, birding saved them. So for me, my birding journey began in the pandemic. We were all locked down. There was nowhere to go. And for the first time, many of us started looking out the window. Um, Kay <laughs> Warren wrote the foreword to the book, and she has a similar story. She was locked down. So she was sitting in her backyard for the first time in this very busy life. Um, really sitting and listening and watching. Um, so I, I got into birding in in 2020. I'm fairly new. I tell people I'm not an expert. I'm an enthusiast. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really into them. I learn more all the time. Um, and 
in the course of getting into birding, uh, my grandfather, who I'd always been close to, uh, fell really ill. And so the story is kind of interwoven with my birding journey and also these decisions I had to make when to fly home, um, when to take that time. He fell ill right before Holy Week in in 2022. No, I'm sorry, 20. Yes, 2022, Holy Week. Um, and I'm a pastor. And so leaving during Holy Week is is very tricky to compound the situation, my husband is also a pastor. And so he, I would be leaving him alone with three small children the busiest week of the church year. Um, but as you know, work is work and life is life and you do what you need to do. So this was the story of saying goodbye, um, but also the story of learning some deeper things about him and about myself and about the Lord intertwined with this walk through um through birding and the hope that it gave me and the grounding that it gave me and how it helped me connect with the deeper things of life and faith. Um, so that's the story. I tell people it's it's sad, um, but there's some Amy Poehler-esque sections in it and there's lots of pelicans. <laughs> I don't even know though. What's a group of pelicans called? A group of pelicans is a squadron. A squadron. <laughs> I love I love all of the different ones. I know everybody knows a murder of crows, but the the interesting ones, one of my favorite is, is it a wake of vultures? If they're on the ground, it's a wake. If they're in a tree, it's a committee, which as a Presbyterian who sits through way too many meetings, I'm like, that is so accurate. Yes. You're like, listen, if you want to have this meeting, we need to climb some trees because otherwise we're dead on the ground and I can't, I can't. can't and they're like, do I don't it. understand, Courtney. What are you trying to say? <laughs> That's hysterical. Um, okay. What of all of those beautiful things you just said, what are some of the deeper things that came to the surface for you through, of course, grieving your grandfather and working through this, but that just the intricacies of how everything worked together, what came to mind? What did you learn? You know, it's interesting as a pastor because I spend a lot of time around death and dying. I do hospital visits. I do funerals. I do memorials. You know, this is not new to me, but it is so different when it's your person. Not that my congregants aren't my person, but when it's, you know, someone who you've been with since you were an infant and they watched you grow and you have all these memories. And so I think some of the deeper things for me were just learning how to sit at a bedside and be a grandchild and not a professional <laughs> um, and to grieve in my own way and to watch my family grieve and to not try to run from it or escape it or distract myself away from it or anesthetize it. I was surprised again by what a long tail grief has. You know, I went home and I was kind of fine. And then I kind of wasn't, and then I kind of was, and then I kind of wasn't, you know, and it would go minute by minute, season by season, things would spring a memory and all of a sudden I'd be in tears in the grocery store. And one of the things that really helped me in that walk through it was the continued practice of birding. So I live here in Southern California. We're very spoiled with the birding weather. I can bird 362 days a year, you know, yeah. three days it's on fire and it's not good to go out, but the rest of the time I can go out. And so these long walks where I would just be untethered from my home, untethered from my job, untethered from my children, untethered from my phone, able to listen, um, listen to the birds, which gradually became a way of listening to my own heart and my own emotions and listening to the Lord. I think that what you described walking and sitting, it's funny how simple it is. And I don't know if it's in response to COVID and all of us trying to quote, you know, get back to our regular lives 
but the ability to stop and sit in the backyard is really challenging. And it's really, even myself, I was just telling my husband, January is when we're recording this. And typically it's the hardest month of the year for me after my mom died seven years ago. And so I prepare myself so differently and go into it with such intention. And this year was the most remarkable January I have experienced in almost a decade, which, you know, we all have like, oh, it's January. We're going to do resolutions and we're going to change our lives and we're going to reimagine everything we've ever dreamed of. I'm not that person. I'm pretty straightforward and like, no, we're going to be as amazing and epic as we've ever been. And then we're going to figure out and decide to rest at some point. Well, I just counted 19 books that I have read this year already. And my brain is on fire. Hmm. And I kept looking back saying, but that's restful. That's easy. That's not work. That's in your downtime. You're sitting, you're being present. And yet it was the noise factor, Mm -hmm. the intake, the inability to just wait and wonder, and even to listen for whether it's bird noises, whether it's a spiritual inkling, whether it's, I like to call them little winks from the heavens, like Hmm. these moments of not even clarity, beyond clarity into peacefulness. I am aware of how important that stuff is, even as a grief professional. And yet at the end of this month, I'm like, okay, yes, it was successful, but there was a lot of opportunity to do less. What do you think about individuals whose brain, because I'm sure like me, your brain probably goes to the one scripture about Don't worry about what you have to eat and drink because God cares for the sparrow, right? I think that's the the simplest place to like start looking at the intersection of the two, but those basic scriptures that come to mind, how would you invite them in that moment of quiet and listening? What of the uncertainty? What of the quiet when we sit and see or hear nothing we can internalize? It's it's difficult and it's different every time. And I think that is part of the grieving process as well is our American culture really pushes people to just get into it and get over it or even just ignore it and get over it. I think we get three days off for the death of a spouse at most workplaces. Like now you're fine. Okay, your entire life has been shattered. Um, And so I think that uncertainty piece is, I mean, part of the goodness of it is realizing that when you have those worst days, likely the day that follows on the heels of that worst day is a little bit better or at least a little bit different. And that the grieving process is long and it's not linear. Um, I don't know if you ever watched the show The Good Place, but they talk about the Jeremy Baramy. It's like a long signature. That's the grieving process, right? Like it's this big loopy signature and it it takes you forward and it takes you back. Um, But in the midst of that uncertainty, and I talk about this in the book, um, part of that uncertainty is such grace because if we knew, okay, in the next month, 12 of those days are going to be terrible, we wouldn't get out of bed tomorrow. Yeah. But instead, we are offered this this daily bread. And, and that's how I think of these spiritual practices is I'm not going to God to receive because I, I'm defective in some way. I'm going to God to receive because God asks me to pray for daily bread. I'm not defective. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. And that is a very normal human thing. And so um, I hate uncertainty. I'm a list maker. I am a planner. It drives my husband up a wall. He's like, let's see the packing spreadsheet. We're going on a three-day trip. Like, I have one. Um, And 
that reminder that that mist that we live our lives in where we can see clearly behind us, but we cannot see even to the next hour mm-hmm. is, is God's kindness. Um, Margaret Rankle has this beautiful new book out called The Comfort of Crows. And she talks about her backyard and she talks about um, birds, but also just ecology in general. And she she writes, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it's such a beautiful section. The world is burning. There is no time to put down the water buckets, but for just a moment, put down the water buckets anyway. Learn from the bluebirds who do not plan for the future, but build for it nonetheless. And I think about that all the time. And and that is one of the reasons that I go back time and time again to birding, to watch even our house finches in the backyard. They're the most commonly seen bird in California. They're they're so common as to be be boring. Um, But to watch them and realize, okay, they're building another nest and the wind tore the last one down, but they're not stuck there. They're, They're moving on to this next thing. They're doing it together. Um, they're sitting in this place of hope. It gives me hope on a day where I'm not ready to build my new nest yet. I'm still grieving the last one. Um, but that reminder that the story keeps going and the birds are not concerned. Mm. I think that that is a really challenging invitation for us. Of course, the birds are not concerned. They're not as cognizant of the chaos that we live within, right? So we have that thought in the back of our mind that kind of can get in the way of the grief process. And I love that you brought up the good place because I, I think and talk about that show all the time. I love the way that it challenges, um, everything. (laughs) (laughs) I love challenges. And so I, I hear and see that happening in, you know, the city square where other people can have those conversations and start to recognize, Oh, backwards and forwards is typical. Something Mm -hmm. falling to pieces makes sense. It was never meant to last forever. What does the ephemeral mean? for me, lessons found in birds, in nature, in TV shows are so much easier to accept because we look and say, that's a great lesson for that. That's a great lesson that the producers came up with on that show. Wow. God really knew what he was doing when he taught a bird how to make a nest. Hmm. I was just reflecting on what does it look like if I were to start thinking of the future, knowing things are ephemeral, knowing things pass, but with a certainty that I will remain and be okay. Because lately I, I seem to keep hearing these little songs affirming everything will be okay. Everything works out in the end. Everything is going to be fine. And I'm like, nah, my mom died of cancer way too young. That wasn't fine. At what point do you want to say things are fine? And to go even further, someone said the other day, if it's not, well, they quoted, if it's not, everything's going to be all right. So if it's not all right, then it's not the end. Hmm. And part of me says, how arrogant, how do we in our grief with our lens of faith, with our lens of stillness and inviting reflection unto our own flourishing under the flourishing of others, how do we continue to remain hopeful Hmm. when we could point to places in our own lives and say, yeah, everything is okay here, but over here. It's on fire, literally, for a lot of us, right? Or it, it doesn't exist. It's been removed entirely. I was looking at destruction in Gaza this morning of a woman's living room. And then after the building was bombed, and then after the building was leveled, and she's like, you've taken my home. What now? How do I know? How can I take all of that lens of what I believe to be true and put it over this and believe that everything's going to be okay? That level of hope is really challenging. 
It is. I I would say it might even be impossible. Yeah. Um, and I think one piece of that is we're not designed to be able to hold the whole cosmic story. And that's become more tempting with, you know, global news and up to the minute news and things like this. Suddenly we can be horrified on seven different continents in seven minutes if we're we're reading through the news. And I, I like to think of, I'm going to take us back to the vultures. I'm a vulture apologist. I love vultures. <laughs> we have all these turkey vultures out here. And you'll see them usually in two different places. You'll see them soaring. So they're way up in the sky and they're soaring over the canyons and they're looking for dead things because they're the janitors of the bird world and, and the priests of the bird world. Um, but you'll also see them in trees. And so in their day, they have this big overview of the whole picture of the area. But then they come down to these little little tree branches and they hang out and they deal with their nestlings and they deal with each other. And I think God wants to give us that permission, like, yes, zoom out, be informed, but don't spend your entire day there, um, that you have to go down to just this, what is right in front of you that God has given you to do? What is your your local place? Who are your local people? And in a time of grief, the only person you may be able to care for some days is yourself. And, and that's not selfish, that's survival. And then maybe the next day you can manage one best friend who's not going to say the insensitive thing or your spouse or your children. Um, and God gives us that permission. At the end of the day, all faith is local. All ministry is local. The difference we can make by and large is mostly local. Um, so to give ourselves permission, you know, there are seasons of life where I sign off social media entirely and I will sign off the news entirely. And I'll tell people I work with, like, if there's something big that's going to affect us here that I need to know, please tell me. You know, I don't want to have my head in the sand. But by and large, that doesn't happen. And now I have permission to care for the morning dove who fell out of her nest in my backyard when before my energy would have been sapped because everything happening in Gaza is horrendous and everything happening in Sudan is horrendous and everything happened, you know, like fill in the yeah. blank. Yeah. Um, so to give ourselves permission to not hold the weight of the world, God doesn't ask us to. And some days holding our own grief will even be too much for us. Yeah. And we can sit in the tree the whole day and it's okay. Yeah. I think the beautiful part of that is recognizing we don't sit in the tree isolated. Um, mm. That's one thing I have been really helping, hoping that I'm helping grievers realize too. And um, I think your book invites this really beautifully as well as that. Yes, you will have moments when you can't offer anything to anyone, but that does not excuse you from being a part of the community. Like there have been times I've shown up and just be like, I got nothing. I'm here, but yes. barely please be present with me because we spend, especially people in service roles, right? We spend so much time and energy pouring into others, but the intention of that is not just to, oh, I did it. I get a feather in my cap. I've served my community, or I did the faithful thing, the God calling thing. It's to create flourishing for others so that they are in turn byproducts of your health, but also like creating health in availability to everyone else, including yourself, right? We're not serving others to receive. We are just naturally on behalf of other people doing the work so that we're all collectively healing and flourishing. And I think that that's something that, I don't know, some faith communities that I've experienced tend to um, excuse that or make it less about communal wholeness. And I think hmm. the beautiful part about bringing birds into it is it reminds you like community is not just the people that you see on a Sunday morning. It's not just your 
um, family in your house, your community is actually the grass that you walk on. It is the soil beneath it. It is knowing that the birds outside, when it's really cold, the hummingbirds need you to warm up that syrup so that they can drink it. And if you put too much sugar, you'll kill them. So do the right thing and look up the recipe, right? It is so much intention toward collective, like the holistic healing of our experience. And and I love that you point out like most of what we can create change for is local, but that doesn't mean that we don't have local Sudanese refugees living in our neighborhood. But if we don't, we don't know that, but maybe we do, and we can care for them intentionally, even as we grieve, even as we experience the enormity of it. Um, we're in that both. And we don't have permission to put our head in the sand but we also aren't expected to do the completion of the work that's needed there. Yes. And that dance is so difficult because so many of us, the easiest thing is to just pour our whole heart and soul into it and lose ourselves in working for justice, working for good. And the other temptation is to just pull back entirely like, well, I can't fix it, so I'm not going to do anything. But God calls us to this dance of doing what we can and then pulling back to rest and then doing what we can. And when we talk about community and grieving in community, I I love, I believe it's from traveling mercies uh, where Anne Lamott says that the world is basically one big hospital and those of us who are more or less okay for now need to take the tenderest possible care of those who aren't and we feed them crackers and juice and we wait for the healer to come and I love that that passage so much because there's this veiled reference to communion right we're feeding them crackers and juice but also we're taking tender care while we wait for the healer to come that ultimately the healing comes from the Lord it comes from you know, the the restoration and the power of the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't let us off the hook. Like right now in this hospital room, your neighbor is bleeding yeah. and you've got a stock of bandages. So so don't sit still. And there will be days where it's you on the mat, you know, the that your friends are carrying you to the feet of Jesus because you can't walk another step. And it's this dance, it's this interplay. And it might be day to day, it might be season to season. Um, but we're all we're all called to that. I think we tend to get in our own way when we think, okay, I'm out here, I'm serving, I'm doing such good work. What about me? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult journey. And I think especially, you know, I, obviously I'm an American, American culture is what I know most about, but we're just bad at grief. We're bad at the language around grief. We're bad at giving permission to grieve. And like you said, so many people who want to help will come with the thing that they've decided will help you. And, you know, it's, it's like, it, it, it's too much and it's too soon or it's not the right thing. And it's so difficult as a griever to have to say, no, thank you or not right now. And then if they're hurt, you feel like you're caring for them. And I think I so appreciate the work that you're doing, helping us develop a language around this, helping us develop, you know, some liturgy around it and some understanding. When you go to someone and say, you know, let me know if I can do anything, there's not a griever alive who's going to call you and say, actually, if you could do a few loads of laundry, that would change my life. Yeah. Um, and I think of of times in my life at my church where folks have said, um, you know, the the unhelpful help versus the helpful help. When we had our our third baby, a woman in the congregation said, if this ever shows up in a sermon, I will leave your church. You cannot talk about this in a sermon. And I was like, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. That's a, that's a fair request. She said, but I would like to come by every Saturday and pick up up to five loads of laundry, and I'd like to return them folded to you if that would be a blessing. And 
just tears sprung. I mean, if you have a new baby, you have laundry coming out your eyeballs and you have no time to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I knew her and I trusted her, I was like, okay, you can have, you know, my postpartum laundry, which is a whole thing. Um, but that sort of help. And she wouldn't have been offended if I said no. She said very specifically what she could offer. So when people are grieving, when you can make that specific creative offer with no emotion attached to it, if they say no, don't make them deal with your sadness. Um, those types of of offers are so huge. When When my grandfather died, a friend was texting me. I was at the airport flying home. And she said, what do you need? And I said, vodka. And it was a joke. I don't drink. It was, <laughs> it was a joke. But when I got home, there was a bottle of vodka on my front steps and I, it just made me laugh. And that was what I needed. You know, that was what I needed. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I had a friend that when my mom died was so intentional around letting me, uh, just kind of unleash about everything I'd been offered or asked of really all the things that were asked of me, um, in the months leading up or after my mom died. And even in the months leading up to it, because we had a little bit of time to know that she was sick and going to go through treatment, um, that to me was such a gift because it wasn't the homework that everyone else was assigning. Hey, what do you need? Let me know if you need something. Yeah. I'm going to need a lot of things. Uh, the friend that was like, do you just need a place to scream? And I was like, thank you for seeing me. You're damn right. I do. And it was so cathartic, not because I wasn't doing it myself, but because they were bearing witness for me. And sometimes Mm -hmm. just being able to know again, back into community, we bear witness to one another's losses and pain and suffering, not unto healing it, but to creating an environment where we are known and understood and our humanity is validated. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, the, the laundry story is beautiful. When my daughter was born, I specifically asked a friend who said, what do you need? I was like, I need my linen closet fixed. It is a mess. I just need, I need that. And I'll never forget it. She came over Hmm. and spent four hours posture. And so even just looking up, it forces you to open that vulnerable chest space that we are trying to protect so aggressively when we grieve, but thinking even further, if you are looking down, if you are curled in, don't worry, there's still quail. Yes. You can still witness, you can still observe the beauty and the, the adorable waddle of a quail that's drawing you away from its family, from its, from its babies that it's trying to protect. There are still beautiful, incredible things that you can witness in yourself. This is what I love about grief work, but, um, it's not about, okay, let's find hope. At one point I called myself a hope dealer within grief work and a friend was (laughs) like, that's true. You are. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) but I also really want to express it didn't hit right. Cause it did Mm. not express the nuance of the fact that I am perfectly happy sitting in the mud, looking down at our feet with you and wondering, does hope have space here? Knowing full well, yeah, it does. But in your grief, you don't have to be able to be the one that says that you can trust that I know it's here and I will help you find it and I will help you uncover it. But gosh, this, we could talk about birds all day, Courtney. (laughs) Maybe we should, maybe we should just talk about them forever. What's your favorite bird after uh, a couple of years of birding? This is always the hardest question. When I ask people this question, I say, what's your favorite bird today? Because it might be different tomorrow and that's okay. Okay. Um, My favorite bird is is staying the same favorite bird because it is my one and only tattoo. Um, My favorite bird is a song sparrow. They're very common. They're all throughout the U.S. Uh, They only, some of them migrate, but only short distances. So they kind of stay put. And the thing I love about song sparrows is they're small, they're brownish, they're ordinary 
but they have this beautiful song. They sing over 200 different varieties of song, and they're one of the few species of birds around here that will keep singing even in really nasty weather. Mm. So that image of continuing to sing through the storm, not losing your voice, even though you're in the midst of a storm, really meant something to me. So I got that tattoo um, right near the the end of the first year of or second year of COVID. It all blends together. Um, yeah. But I carry that song sparrow with me wherever I go. I love that. As you were saying that too, I was like, man, our song doesn't have to be loud. Sometimes it's the whisper. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes it's a really quiet chirp, but we still continue to express. And that's beautiful. Fun fact. My only tattoo is also a bird. Respect. What is it? It, well, I'll show it to you. It's a dove, right? Yeah. Dove inside of the flame. I mean, I don't even remember which denomination it's like literally this design isn't, but it's like someone saw it and said, Oh, that's the so-and-so denomination logo. I was like, damn it. That is (laughs) not my, that wasn't my intention, but I don't care. I love it so much. (laughs) Maybe, maybe I need a little update with some more birds around it, but yeah, it's beautiful. Anyway, Courtney, you are a delight and your book is coming out April 9th. Is that right? Right before my birthday, the best day. Happy birthday. birthday. Happy birthday book. It'll be a perfect celebration and and birthday cake Um, for people who pre-order. This is just a fun little side note for people who pre-order. If you fill out the little form that I have on my website, because I have to know where to find you. I don't actually have any way of tracking who buys the book and from where, but if you fill out the form on my website for a pre-order bonus, um, I do this thing on social media every once in a while called badly drawn birds, where people who leave a comment, I draw them a bird and I'm not an artist. So they're goofy cartoon birds. Uh, but if you pre-order and fill out the form, I will personally send you a personalized badly drawn bird to your house on beautiful stationery uh, that you can save forever as just an act of, of whimsy. I love it. I think we need more acts of whimsy. So that's perfect. I've seen your birds and I'm always like, those are just delightfully terrible. They're perfect. They're horrendous, they're but exactly they're cute. <laughs> we need in the world is more of that. Well, I will have the link for your website for anyone listening so that you can go and order and get your own badly drawn bird along with a copy of looking up because this is going to be a perfect gentle invitation into something new that you may or may not have considered to be a source of grief and restoration for you. So there is time for birding. So thank you for making space here today. Thank you for having me, Mandy. It was a joy. Thank you for listening to episode 123 of Restorative Grief. I love the way Courtney's work is an invitation into simple joys and a present-mindedness through life and our grief experiences too. The hobby of birding doesn't have to be the way that you choose to move into a new season for health, but if you're open to the possibility that healing is available, then perhaps a new hobby is a great way to explore what is just waiting in the wings to be noticed. You see what I did there? (laughs) A good pun never hurt nobody, but I'm really sorry. I couldn't help myself. Um, (laughs) If this is your first time listening to the show, then thank you for laughing with me and investing your time in this resource. If you're interested in going further with your grief work, there is a companion workbook available on Patreon, as well as an opportunity to explore what a one-on-one coaching connection might look like for you. There are links to all of these in the show notes, as well as the link to pre-order Courtney's books. I really, really would encourage you to do so. It's beautifully written 
And I love birds. I, I understand that some people don't, but I, I just don't get it. I think they're glorious. And before we go, one last thing, as always, please remember the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.